Well, hi. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. So I really want to thank you for joining me because, well, this is episode two. And if you're here on episode two, that means you might have listened to episode one and you're actually choosing to come back. So, you know, yay. So I'm kind of sad this week because I wouldn't ordinarily be expecting a house full of guests to show up in order that we can all attend Creative Ink Fest uh, this weekend in Burnaby, which is a just a terrific gathering of readers, writers, artists, uh, just lots of panels, lots of discussions, lots of laughing, and um, it's just an all-round really good time. And of course, like many other large social gatherings, it's been canceled this year. So I shall have to just wait to see my writer friends in person another time. Anyway, a big shout out to you all and to the the organizing committee of Creative Inc. And I look forward to seeing you all healthy and happy next year. Anyway, here we are. We're, we're happy to be here. And um, I'm doing okay here in my little house. And I really have nothing to complain about. So let's not waste a whole bunch of time. Let's just get on with chapter two. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter two, Indelible First Impressions. Up in Simon's, now her, room, Kier took a cursory glance at his belongings and dismissed them for later. For now, the Duke of Eckert himself took precedence. She quickly dealt with her cut and carefully locked the room before descending the stairs. McGinn caught her just as she headed out the front door. She handed him the key to her room for safekeeping, and he spoke confidentially. I don't know what you did to impress him, young lady, but this is rare. I can't imagine I did anything that impressed him, but I believe you're right. Valraker waited for her on the veranda, and together they descended the front steps. In the light from the recently departed sun, Kier saw that the body had been removed from the front yard. The job had been done thoroughly and efficiently, for there were no traces of the skirmish. He didn't mention it, so neither did she. Side by side, they headed south along the main road, back the way Kier had come into town less than two hours before. Valraker's straight back and long strides suggested a comfort with the world. He had no affectation or pretentiousness, and if she felt a bit inferior, she didn't get a sense that the feeling stemmed from him. She was in awe because of who he was, not what he was. He came across as much more ordinary than she'd envisioned. Ordinary in an extraordinary kind of way. Still, she did not wish to embarrass herself again, or he would change his mind about this invitation. She wrestled a wave of jitters under control. She had to be ready for anything. She glanced up at him. Dark elves were, on average, the shortest of the four types of elves. Her companion was about six feet. I always thought the Duke of Eckert would be taller. Oh, he said. I've always been quite satisfied with my height. I hope you weren't terribly disappointed. Your legs go all the way to the ground. That's good enough for me. About ten minutes south of the village, Valraker took an abrupt left turn, leading her into a dense cedar grove. There was a path, but the amount of undergrowth suggested it wasn't well used. The cedars opened into a stand of black cottonwoods. The dark elf's long black hair draped around cloaked shoulders, and his booted feet made hardly a sound. 
the cottonwoods shivered around them, their leaves fluttering and flashing their silvery undersides to the twilight. A myriad of questions danced around in her thoughts, but Valraker's silence seemed to have taken on a new depth. She was reluctant to disturb it. Kier's skin prickled. She always listened to that instinct. Her sword was in her hand instantly, her knees bent in the ready position as her eyes darted about for the target she knew was out there. Valreker had stopped and was looking at her with a surprised expression, but she didn't relax her stance. She felt uncertain. Was he laughing at her? "'Jumpy, are we?' he asked. The heat of a blush flooded her face and neck. She straightened and looked away. If Valraker himself wasn't unnerved, why should she be? But her shoulders and core remained taut, and she didn't sheathe her sword. Out of the wooded blackness came a low whistle that could have been an evening bird, only it wasn't, which she knew because she was listening, not just hearing, and was prepared for anything. Valraker glanced at her. Was that a frown?' and replied with a similar call. When a tall hooded figure stepped like a shadow out of the woods, Valraker wasn't alarmed. The newcomer was not unexpected. Kier swiftly sheathed her sword. "'Well, it's about time, Val. What took you so long? Derry sent me to find you. If I'd known you were going to be so late, I'd have stayed back and had another bowl of soup. Where have you—' "'Slow down there, chum,' Valraker said. "'I was enjoying a glass of wine. These things can't be rushed.' Her newest companion pulled down his hood. He had typical elven ears, but his fair complexion, the white blonde hair, which he wore long enough to be scruffy, and his height compared to Valraker's, identified him as a wood elf. Even in the twilight, his flame-blue eyes glowed with an intensity she wanted to look at for a long time. He looked down at Kier, appealing to her sympathy. "'He's late because he's drinking wine while I skip dessert!' "'Good gracious, say it isn't so,' Valraker said. "'Shall we go?' Valraker stepped by the wood-elf and then stopped and sniffed. "'Fennel, when did you last bathe?' "'Um, I can't remember. A couple of weeks ago.' "'Great,' he plunged into the woods. "'Kier, I hope you're not prone to fainting spells.' The blonde elf gestured for Kier to precede him. She caught a whiff as she passed him and understood what Valraker had meant. "'Fennel is our living science experiment.' I just don't like it. The only reason we can stand having him around is that he's so damned handsome. Oh, shut up! Kier stiffened, watching Valraker for a sign of his notorious temper, but to her surprise he was chuckling. Kier, do you need to hold on to my arm in the dark? No, I'm all right, thanks. Her eyes had adjusted quickly. Fennel, this is Kier. Watch what you say or she might kill you. A shocked laugh escaped Kier as she paused to acknowledge the introduction. Switching to the wood-elvish tongue, she said to Fennel, "'Does he always let people tell him to shut up?' A smile spread across his face. "'I'd like to think it's because he likes me, but he's pretty easy-going that way.' He examined her, lifting her hair from her ears. Changing back to Rydrish, he said, "'I can see your ears, but that's all. What kind of elf are you?' "'I'm not. Human through and through.' She hurried to catch up with Valraker. Fennel's long strides didn't fall behind. "'Where'd you learn to speak Elvish, then?' "'My trainer. I was exasperatingly persistent until he agreed to teach me.' "'That's nice for me,' Fennel said. Valraker held a branch so it wouldn't slap Kier upside the head and spoke around her at Fennel. "'The others are all there, then?' "'Yeah. Jaskelin wasn't sure he would make it to Wanaka by this evening, but he made better time than he expected.' "'Good. That's good.' Valraker's voice sounded suddenly tired and introspective." 
The forest became more and more dense, the canopy closing in and allowing little help from the waning asp moon, the final moon of the Rydris year. The thickening clouds already obscured its light, and only the occasional shaft penetrated to the ground. Kier was thankful to be with Valraker because she was completely lost. When Kier smelled wood smoke, she knew they were nearing their destination. Soon a tiny flicker of flame flashed through the forest, and Kier's anticipation flared. She followed Valraker into the clearing. Three individuals stared at her, their arms and hands tightening reflexively at the appearance of a stranger. "'Gentlemen,' Valraker said, "'sorry to have kept you waiting. I assure you it was unavoidable. This is Kier. Kier, this is my captain, Derry Morant, as well as Jeskellen and Janik. Please be seated.' The captain was a tall human with blonde hair, not as white-blonde as Fennel's, more golden and close-cropped. He wore a few pieces of plate mail which glinted redly in the light of the small fire. He bowed, a stiff formal bending of his waist, and he did not smile at the introduction. Although he wasn't unpleasant to look at, he did not have the striking good looks of one or two of the men Kier had come across, and had become better acquainted with, as it happened. Kier's quick assessment summed him up as dignified, even haughty, in complete contrast with Valraker. Jeskellen was human, short, black, and bald, wearing dark brown robes and carrying the inevitable staff, a shaman likely. The other, Janik, was a dwarf, and eyed Kier with as much distaste as he might a dish of maggot-riddled meat. She did not miss the look on the dwarf's face when he saw the sheath of her sword stretch out beyond the hem of her cloak on the ground behind her. Fennel flopped down at the feet of Derry, who sat upright on a deadfall log. Kier wanted desperately to say an alpha dwarf and a shaman walk into a bar, but she held her tongue. Not even a murmur rippled through the group as Valraker seated himself at the bowl of a pine tree. Kier's eyes followed the trunk of the tree up to where it split in two, and those trunks twisted around each other as they reached to the sky. Valraker pulled out a knife and began picking at dirt underneath his fingernails. His legs stretched out and ankles crossed as casually as if he were about to have a nap. His brow, however, was knit tight, giving Kier the impression that he wanted to appear less worried than he was. "'I have received bizarre tidings from the north,' Valraker began. "'My duchy may be overrun by Dregor's forces, but I don't see this as a reason to neglect my people.' Kier figured this must be for her benefit, as his men would already know it. For this reason, I maintain a selection of scouts who travel around Eckert, report to each other, and to me. It took some time for my scout to finish his route and return to Shale, and then some more time for me to track you all down and send a summons. He cast a tired-looking grin around the group, absently rubbing the scar that connected his eyebrow to his jaw. All in all, it has been about two months since he was there. Though darkness hangs over all of Eckert, there are some pockets that are more or less free to carry on as before— Perhaps Dregor has yet to decide how to make use of them? <laughs> he let out a short, mirthless laugh. My scout reports some disquieting and puzzling behavior in the village of Nenya, just a few days over the Shea-Eckert border. He tells me that the villagers' behavior is unnatural, to say the least. They walk about as if in a trance. If spoken to, they are pleasant enough, but their emotions have been flattened. They appear false, as if in a daze. Is that not expected from villagers living under oppression? The shaman suggested. Valraker shook his head. 
The scout said it was different. Even people living under oppression have passion. There is anger at the circumstances, vows to fight the enemy. There are underground movements to communicate with other villagers, efforts to boost morale. I would even be relieved to hear that people are angry with me for deserting them. Besides, even in the direst situations, people find ways to be happy in defiance of their oppressors. It is impossible to keep children from inventing ways to play. But no, this is a village full of people, young to old, who would not care if a demon entered the village and stole their children. One woman even reported that her husband had gone missing, but when Dev pressed her, she'd forgotten she'd even said it. The dwarf snorted. She'd probably offed him because she was dissatisfied. The captain shot him a look of reprimand. Janik. Janik rolled his eyes. Human women are notoriously fickle. Dwarf women are lucky to find one male worth their time, Kier said. Fennel laughed, <laughs> then instantly sobered. The dwarf shot her a dirty look, and the captain's eyes widened in his otherwise expressionless face. The shaman didn't react at all. Kier kicked herself. First impressions count, half-wit. Valraker coughed, and there was a general shifting of positions. Now, I have asked you all here because I need you to go to Nenya and find out what is going on. Eradicate the problem if necessary. Dev said there was a man by the name of Carver who seemed less affected than the rest. See if you can find him. I am asking you to cross enemy lines, which is why we need to keep the party small. I will go with you as far as Shale, but no farther, as I have two other task parties meeting me there. Will you go? There was a general murmuring of, yes, of course. The captain asked the shaman to be his second, and Kier watched the men interact with each other, reflecting on what it must be like to be part of a group such as this. These men knew one another, had worked together before, and leapt at the opportunity to step up and undertake a task for Valraker. She'd never given much thought to what she intended to do with all her training, but she'd left Wrath to find out. "'How can you abandon Wrath like this?' Tarkin had said. "'I'm not abandoning Wrath. I don't think I was ever meant to be here in the first place.' "'Kier?' She turned to Valraker. What she saw in his eyes surprised her. It was a question. "'Are you in?' He was asking her to join the mission.' She couldn't have been more surprised if he'd asked for her hand in marriage. Y yes, I am. Valraker nodded once and got to his feet. Astonished, Kier remained where she sat and gripped her knees with her hands. Three weeks she'd travelled from a tiny village in a remote corner of the Duchy of Heath, waiting for something to happen that would guide her. After three weeks of nothing, she was beginning to despair that she'd have to return home and concede their small-minded suspicions that she was nothing but a troublemaker with a skewed sense of self-importance. Simrian spawn. Kier thought she ought to feel like her head was spinning, but she felt oddly in control, as if this were meant to be. Brendau had told her to find work. Hello. The knight looked down at her with blue eyes that were not unfriendly. He stood back an extra pace or two, politely attempting to not tower over her. She scrambled to her feet. The others prepared to leave. The clearing darkened as Jeskelin doused the fire, waving his fingers over it. Captain Derry Morant, I think. She stuck out a hand. He bowed. Kier Halladin. My, aren't we formal? His firm handshake matched hers. 
He indicated that she should precede him into the trees behind the others, and soon the forest closed in around them. "'You must have done something impressive for Valraker to ask you to join us,' Derry said to her back. "'He chooses his people very carefully.' Kier said nothing, unsure if it was a compliment or a warning. <laughs> Flora hummed my laddie's coming home as she trod up the steps to the second floor of the inn. She was weighed down by her burden, but repeated to herself what she'd said to Mr. Medlicott. The yoke was ungainly, and doing it by hand was easier. Martha could keep her opinions to herself, the little so-and-so. Flora turned left at the top and set the first pail down on the floor by room three, a bit of water sloshing out of it. Dang, I'll need a rag for that. Proceeding to room four, she looked to the end of the corridor. A man hovered over the door handle of the last room on the left. "'You there!' she called. "'What you're doing?' She set her pail down on the floor by room four and stood up straight, assuming as much authority as a lowly maid could do. The man backed away from the door, flushing, and surreptitiously thrust something into his pocket. Seeing her, he pushed his cap back and adopted a jaunty grin. "'Have no fear, milady. He bobbed his head, walking toward her. It's only that my key's not working to open this door. Maybe you could send someone up to help me. Not taken in by his charm, she put a hand on her hip. Perhaps it's not working, cause that's not your door. He stopped abruptly and had the decency to look nonplussed. He looked back the way he'd come and chuckled at himself, shaking his head. <laughs> I can't believe I made such a mistake. I... You're not fooling anyone. I know whose room that was, and you've no business there. She pointed back toward the staircase. Away with you, or I'll call Bill. She reached up, threatening to yank the rope on the call bell that hung on the wall. The man blanched at the name, apparently familiar with the one-armed bouncer. He fairly scurried past her. I'll be getting Bill to set a watch in this corridor now, she told him as he bolted down the stairs. Flora knew what was what. The girl with the sword was the only one with leave to enter the dead man's room. Anybody else was up to no good. When they reached the edge of the woods, Valraker grabbed her arm. Kier stopped, curious, as Derry passed into the road. Then she understood. Derry's long strides took him northbound on the road, and beyond him the others dispersed with no acknowledgement of each other, their shadows melting into the village. Finally, Valraker let go of her arm and they proceeded. Kier and Valraker re-entered the tavern at the Burnished Blade, where Derry sat at the bar already sipping from a tankard of ale. The Duke introduced her as if they hadn't met before. McGinn gave them each a pint of ale and expressed his pleasure at seeing Kier again. Then he rested an elbow on the counter before her. "'These are yours,' he handed her two keys, one she recognized as her room key." "'This other one is for a shed at the back of the stable. "'Your friend of this afternoon paid several gold "'to see that his cart of belongings was kept secure. "'He also owned the light chestnut mare. "'Jack will point her out to you. "'When you have finished looking through his belongings in your room, "'leave him on the floor outside and someone will take him away.' "'Kier turned the first key around in her fingers. "'Who is this friend who leaves you a key to a shed?' Derry asked. "'The word friend isn't accurate,' Kier explained.' though I expect you know that. He wanted company for the night. When the word no repeated several times didn't get through, we had to have a meeting in the yard. The knight's upper body retracted ever so slightly, and this had to lead to his death. Resentment shot through her like a bee sting. Was he scolding her? Indirectly, he cheated twice. 
the animal, said Derry. You were right to defend yourself. She looked at him sardonically. I'm delighted you approve. Derry fully exemplified every folktale description she had heard of a typical knight. The pride, the formality, the indignation at a cad's treatment of a woman. At the same time, she was aware of his eyes on her. Her story, and maybe her attitude, had surprised him. "'Would you gentlemen care to accompany me for the unveiling?' she said, with a vague hope that the knight would decline. Both men responded in the same fashion. They picked up their mugs and got to their feet. The late winter air embraced her, summoning goosebumps on her arms. A thick blanket of clouds had completely obscured the glow of the asp moon. The new swan moon would bring spring with it in just more than a week. Valraker waited in the doorway of the stable, his puff of breath silhouetted in the light from within. Kier and Derry passed him to enter the warmth, and Kier breathed in the horse and hay smells. Jack looked up from pouring oats into a bucket and showed his toothy grin. With his hair sticking out all over like knives in a practice target, he was the happiest stable boy Kier had ever seen. He chattered merrily to the resident horses and mules as he topped up their feed bin for the night, asking them about their days and introducing them to each other as if they were his dinner guests. Kier checked Trigg, who was in good spirits, freshly rubbed down and brushed since his arrival. He was gobbling down the last of a few carrots that had been tossed in with his oats. I must give that young fellow a generous tip, she thought. Jack trotted over and patted the nose of the mare in the stall across from Trigg. This one belonged to that Mr. Diddick, if you'd care to look her over, miss. Trigg missing anything? No, he's absolutely in good hands. She looked at the other animal, then back at the boy. Say, Jack, she said impulsively, I really have no use for that mare right now. Do you suppose you'd be able to look after her until I come back? Make sure she gets exercise and all? The boy nearly burst with pleasure. For me, miss, really? Just alone, you understand. She frowned, but smiled with her eyes. Jack's broad grin told her he understood perfectly. I'll take real good care of her until you come back. What's her name? Jack looked into the horse's eyes a moment. Concord he announced. Kier left the boy talking to the animal, something about lupins. Some rough, low snorting startled her. She turned to see Derry rubbing the nose of the hugest animal she had ever seen. It suited Derry's grandeur that he should ride such a majestic animal as a warhorse. She ambled over. "'Don't worry, he won't hurt you,' Derry said gently. "'Did he think she was six? A destrier that's well-trained? Shocking!' Derry's hand stopped. That was patronizing. I apologize. His courtesy in response to her defensive outburst was generous, and she flushed guiltily. I suppose it would be unwise for you to assume I was comfortable. This is the first one I've seen, but I do know what they're trained for. Come on now, Valraker drummed his fingers on the doorframe. I want to see what's in that cart before morning. Kier couldn't disappoint the Duke's youthful enthusiasm. She borrowed a lantern from Jack, and they went out the back door of the stable to a large lean-to shed against the rear of the building. Derry held the lantern high so Kier could see to fit the key into the lock. With barely concealed excitement, she pulled the door open, and the stench of mold and mildew puffed out like skunk spray. The light flooded in to reveal a lumpy, boxy shape covered with a sheet of canvas. Kier banged her shin on the tongue of the cart as she stepped into the shed. She placed a hand on the top. It was damp, though it hadn't rained for a week. Derry lowered the lantern as Kier gripped the edge of the canvas and flipped back the corner. A leather-gripped sword hilt jutted out. 
Valraker stepped to the far side and helped her to pull the cover back. She gaped at several wooden crates, a dozen or more swords wrapped in oilcloth, and a collection of unstrung longbows of a fine golden wood. Huh, Valraker said. Kier ran appreciative fingers down the length of the smooth shaft. Made from you. These are beautiful and expensive. She looked up to see Valraker eyeing her curiously. And not well looked after. She indicated the dampness of the canvas. Something told Kier that Simon Diddick had been more than a typical lecherous wayfarer. What do you suppose he was doing with these? An ordinary shipment, maybe? Derry suggested. Could be for an outlying town that's worried about conflict. Longbows? Kier shook her head. Not a chance. With a dagger, Kier pried open a crate amid creaks and groans of wood. She reached in and grasped the cold metal of a narrow rod. Amongst clinks of iron, she pulled it out. The case was full of crossbow bolts. The captain kept watch at the door while Valraker helped Kier open the rest of the crates. More bolts, she-pharaohs with nasty-looking triple-edged tips, and large-tined throwing stars. Kier glanced at Derry. I hardly think average townsfolk would even know what this stuff is, let alone have the skills to use them. Nothing suggested an intended recipient. Whoever expected the shipment was preparing for something and would be disappointed when neither the delivery man nor the items arrived. Maybe McGinn knows where he was going. Simon has, I mean, had been here before and maybe told him something when he asked to use the shed. Possibly, Valraker said. But in any event, Kier, I think it's fair of me to assume that this weaponry is a greater problem than you need to deal with. I would suggest it ought to be given over to the local sheriff to put to his own good use. Kier agreed with him and handed over the responsibility of the cart to the duke. They locked up and returned to the entrance hall. I want to go through Simon's belongings before I turn in, so I'll say good night, Kier said. Derry touched her arm. I would be happy to help you if you would like it. He meant well, and he was no Simon Diddick, but he was so overly serious she couldn't help herself. She adopted a shocked expression and put her hand on his. Why, Derry, are you asking to accompany me to my room? Usually a man at least buys me a drink first. <laughs> Valraker snorted. Derry's face went a deep scarlet, and he pulled his hand away. That is not what I meant. I... I know, she relented with a sigh. Had he no sense of humor? Your help won't be necessary, thanks. I'm only looking through his stuff. I should be able to handle it. Good night. She showed the key to the man guarding the second-floor corridor. He waved her past. She opened the door of the room and closed it behind herself. The room was as she'd left it in her haste, her own belongings by the door, the dead man's pack open on the floor next to the bed, and a soiled tunic hung on a chair in the corner alongside his grey cloak. It smelled of pipe tobacco and soap. Kier remembered his saying he'd been up to the room already upon his arrival. Apparently she'd killed him in his clean tunic. Pity. She rifled through his pack amid a rush of mixed emotions. He might still be alive if he hadn't demanded to share this bed with her. But without the jewel, would Valraker have invited her to the meeting? Still, to have killed him was not a thing she could be glad about. She found nothing interesting among the spare trousers, undergarments, and sundry items in the pack. He must have done his laundry in a stagnant pond if scent was anything to go by. A shaving kit sat on the washstand. A set of saddlebags leaning against the wall contained some cooking implements and a few food items, which she took out to keep for herself. A mildewy woolen bedroll hung airing on the hook next to the door. 
There was just one more place to check while she was being thorough. Placing the lamp on the floor, she got down on her knees and peered under the bed. Aha! Up against the wall at the head of the bed, the flickering flame illuminated a small box. She stretched out on her belly and reached for it. Once in better light, she could see that it was not merely a box, but a chest made of dark wood with a silver lock on the front. After removing Simon's unwanted items out to the corridor for the bouncer to deal with, she sat cross-legged on the bed, the chest in front of her. Her nerves quivered with excitement. In her fingertips, she held the tiny key she had found in Simon's pouch. With breath held, she inserted the key and gave it a firm twist. The lock clicked open. She lifted the lid, revealing the aroma of cedar and a frisson of energy on her face like opening an oven door. A red velvet cushion cradled a three-finger-wide piece of pewter with a green gem recessed on the front. Etched with straight angular lines of varying thickness, the item was curved and nestled in its soft pillow. An armband? Kier hovered her fingertips over it, and a buzzing feeling intensified to a vibration that moved up each finger to her palm. With a shudder, she drew her hand away. Her throat tight with alarm, she closed the lid of the chest, abruptly cutting off the flow of energy. She snapped the lock into place, and it took her a moment to shake the tremors from her hand. Whatever the device was, Simon Diddick had paid a lot for it. No wonder it was hidden under the bed. She set the chest on the floor by her pack. She would show it to Valraker in the morning or take it to an alchemist in the capital. Kier stuck her head out the window into the dark night and took a deep breath of the clean, cool, moist air. The rushing stream suffused the silence. Rain tomorrow, she mused. Light from the kitchen spilled out into the yard, but it failed to brighten more than a tiny area, though the moon seeped between clouds and peeked through the trees. Reluctant to end the day, but too tired to let it go on, Kier grasped the handles on the two leaded glass window panes and pulled them too. She fastened the latch with a firm click. The crisscross pattern reminiscent of Brendau's house made her smile. Kier latched the shutters and pulled the bar down across them out of habit. She extricated herself from her weapons and leather armor and pulled her tunic over her head. The medallion that lay against her chest normally went unnoticed. It had been there for so many years that it was as familiar to her as her own face. She had shown it to very few people, only her closest friends. Even Brendau had seen it for the first time not long before she left the village. The runes, etched into the strange metal on the front and back, were completely foreign to him, he said. She brushed the smooth facets of the violet jewel inlaid in its center, surrounded by markings and symbols that made no sense to her. Kier's childhood had been clouded by whispers of adults, taunts of children. The child who'd shown up in Hrath, speaking in tongues, as the villagers said. She wasn't born in Hrath, so where had she come from? She was the product of some wizard's mistake. She was abandoned by a whore. She was hatched after a giant rook had mated with a greln. When she was eight, the popular girl at school, Sheska Bolin, set the other girls into fits and giggles with her rumor that Kier was a Cimrian witch, a tale to which Kier responded with a knife to the other girl's throat, prompting the schoolmistress to gleefully take a rod to Kier's palms until they bled, while Sheska laughed. What enraged Kier was that she couldn't prove Sheska's claim false. Most recent of all was the attack on her way home, which left Kier bruised, but left eight men bleeding. Stop it, she told herself, and shoved that memory back in its box. 
She soaked a wash rag in warm water and scrubbed herself, working around the medallion that was the only clue to who she was. The cloth washed away the many days of accumulated grime, and as she rinsed, she also rid herself of the emotions she did not need to visit right now. Soon, hair still wet and feeling overall refreshed, she nestled among the soft blankets, a luxurious contrast to the bowl of a tree she'd have faced had she not met Simon. Fatigue enveloped her. As she reached to put out the lamp, she remembered something. She threw back the blankets. Climbing back in, she turned out the lamp and fell into a peaceful slumber, with her sword at her side. Kierre had no idea how long she'd been asleep, though it seemed a very short time. But suddenly she was upright, body rigid with expectation, hand on her hilt. Her ears strained into the stillness for a repeat of the sound that had awakened her. Again, creaking. But not from the hallway, nor from her neighbor in the next room. From outside. Could it be... Someone was climbing a ladder. Up to her window? She was sure of it. In the darkness, she slipped noiselessly out of bed and faced the window, her sword gripped with both hands. Her heart pounded in her throat. The prowler was trying to open the latch, holding the windows closed. A little click told her he was successful. How much farther should she allow him to get? A soft squeak informed her that the panes were open, and the intruder would soon discover she'd barred the shutters. She hated not being able to see out. Why'd they have to go and make shutters with the slats pointing the wrong way? She readied her sword tip at the opening between the shutters, below the bar. A dagger tip appeared and flipped off the latch, then one shutter moved gently in, only to come up against the bar. Kier heard a whispered curse. That was her moment. The ankle was awkward, but she thrust her sword straight through the gap, shaving a slice off the wooden shutter and catching the unwelcome guest completely off guard. She heard a stifled cry, a rasping sound as the ladder grated against the siding, and a thud as he hit the ground. Kier tried to pull out her sword, but it was stuck between the shutters. Damn! She furiously wrenched it upwards, effectively throwing up the bar. A yank on the sword pulled the shutters open with a clatter and freed the weapon. She stuck her head out the window, but all she saw was a shadow disappearing around the corner of the building. Damn it! <sighs> she sat down on the bed and sucked in breaths to slow the trembling in her limbs. She took a couple of deep breaths to calm herself. Who in hell was that? She flopped down on the bed, the answer to the question all too obvious. She doubted the man would come back for more that night, but now she was wide awake and annoyed, both at him and at herself for forgetting that Simon might have had friends in Wanaka. Anyway, I can't go back to sleep until I do something about that ladder. After barring the window again, she pulled on her trousers and boots and locked the door behind herself. She slipped down the hall with her unsheathed sword grasped firmly in her hand. The corridor was dark, but a faint glow from the entrance hall below filtered up the stairs, enough for her to see her way. The lingering smells of ale and evening meals gave evidence that this was a lively establishment during the day in contrast to the current relative stillness. A small choir of snoring reminded her to descend the stairs as quietly as possible, mindful of the travelers asleep in the common room. She went out the front door, eyes darting all around, looking for any trace of her assailant. If a surprise attack were launched, she was ill-prepared, but she relied on the unlikelihood of the man's making a second attempt so soon after his first debacle. Kier followed the drive around the building to the right and was thankful for even the limited amount of light from the tavern and the kitchen. A sound from the stable startled her. She stopped and gripped her sword in readiness. Out of the shadows appeared Jack, his perpetual grin ghostly in the flicker of his lantern. 
Kier lowered her weapon and sighed in relief. Don't you ever sleep? Oh, don't worry about me. I get plenty, Jack responded brightly. Why are you outside at this time of the night? Kier hesitated, then decided this remarkable boy might be able to assist her. Yes, he had seen someone running away, holding his shoulder as if hurt. No, he hadn't seen where he came from. Jack followed Kier around to the river side of the building, to her window, where she examined the footprints. Large enough to be male, separate heel indicating that it wasn't a flat boot, trail of them leading off toward the river, and that was all. The two carried the ladder to store it in the barn. She thanked Jack for his help and went indoors, pausing at the entrance to the common room. The warmth from the fire was most welcome, and she shivered off the chill of the damp night air. The room was by no means full, but snores and peaceful breathing rose from nine or ten shadowy bodies on cots or on thick rugs on the plank floor. The fire in the huge stone fireplace that dominated the far end of the room would keep them all warm with or without blankets. It was one of the nicer common rooms she had seen. Across the hall, through the archway into the tavern, she saw no trace of anyone else up and about. Very late, then. She had climbed a couple of steps when she heard a low voice. Hello. Derry stood in the doorway of the common room. Oh, she said. Hello. You having trouble sleeping? He continued to wordlessly contemplate her with an odd expression on his face. This is a strange conversation for the middle of the night, she thought. The captain suddenly recovered from his momentary lapse, casting his gaze around the entrance hall before becoming the courteous knight once more. I awoke at the sound of someone going outside. I was concerned when I saw that it was you. Is everything all right? Yes, Kier said quickly. I had something to take care of, that's all. Ah, well, as long as you are all right. I'm fine. Then she added, thanks. I really just want to go back to bed now. Of course. He raised his hand apologetically. Good night. Kier gave him a nod and continued up the stairs. Derry watched her for a few seconds, then returned to the common room and lay awake for a while, picturing the young woman standing on the stairs, the lamp on the table lighting her from below. It deepened her alert green eyes, and he had a fleeting thought that nothing would escape her notice, including things about him that he may not want to share. And it shone on her long hair, a little wild from being slept on when it was wet, He'd marked the way she held her bastard sword, her grip light but confident on the hilt, not overly tall, but attractively muscled from years of wielding such a weapon. Even without armor, she clearly was someone to be reckoned with. Her continued refusal of his offers of aid puzzled him, but in spite of this, he was strangely pleased that this young woman was to be a member of their party. Ronav paced around his small chamber as he waited for Khan to respond to his call. The mind-speaker gem was pressed against his temple. Finally, he felt Khan's words in his head. Ronav stopped next to his fireplace. Did he get it? No, he didn't get it. He got a bloody great slit in his shoulder for his trouble. Ronav swallowed and steadied himself on the mantle. I need it. What's in the damn chest that's so important? Nothing. Ronav snapped to attention. It's for me. It's a project I'm working on. Nothing important. He wiped one sweaty palm at a time on his trousers, his heart sinking. Well, chief, if it's not that important, you're going to have to make up your mind which you want more, the girl or the box. If it's in her possession, I do not see why you cannot bring me both. Can't guarantee it. Which you want most? Ronav leaned against the mantle, his left knuckles white as he clutched it. Losing the weaponry was bad enough, but he could get more, and it was only for the current study. The armlet, on the other hand, was vital to his plan. 
The larger scheme. My future. What? Nothing. What have you learned about this girl? I don't know nothing more about her. Ronav sighed. He'd have to explain to Golgothar why some girl had killed one of his best men. He'd want to know what else she knew about the study. If Ronav didn't have answers, well, another trip to the far north. Chief, Khan's voice said into his mind. Ronav took a deep breath. It did nothing for his heart rate. He closed his eyes regretfully. What he wanted was quite separate from what he needed. He made his choice. Khan's flat-tipped fingers massaged the hideous scar that ran along the right side of his jaw. The muscles would never reawaken, and he could not feel his own touch along the scar. He glanced over at Jet, who sat moodily on the bed while one of the others bound his wound. With the mind-speaker gem back in his pouch, Khan spoke to the little group. "'Better find out where she's headed.' Well, that's it for this week. That was Chapter 2. So I hope you tune in next week to find out just exactly how much of a Kier fan Janik is. And Kier gets a chance to ask Derry if he's going to be this much fun all the way to Nenya. Uh, oh, by the way, I now have a Facebook page because we're just doing one thing at a time here. So check that out if you're of a mind. And uh, I'll post, you know, stuff that's related to the podcast and um with any luck uh we can make it interactive you know you can ask questions or well whatever and maybe i'll answer them actually what would be cool is if i got a whole bunch of questions and then one day i could make a bonus episode where i answer them wouldn't that be fun Alrighty. well take care of yourselves be kind be calm be safe and uh Thank you to my family, Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. Always to David and Sharon. Thanks again to the original six. To all my friends as we slowly but surely start to open things up. We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when. But I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Now, go be fantastic.